So when I was younger, we used to visit uh, one of my mum's relatives' uh, cousin who lived in Suffolk. She was married to a farmer, uh, and they had you know one of those kitchen tables—the only kind of kitchen table that you get in a farmhouse. It's massive thing, and it comes to dinner time, and we're going to have a roast. And this is a feast. It's like having a Toby Carvery inside the house. You've got serving plates, and they're full of food. And there's this one particular plate that catches my eye. And it's filled with golden crisp roast potatoes. Yeah, as an eight-year-old boy, there's only two ways that potatoes should be cooked, and that's either as chips or as roasts. So this is this is brilliant. And not only is there a big bowl of potatoes, there's two. There's two huge bowls. One in the most sort of more traditional round roast potato shape, and the other maybe more chip shape. And this is as good as it gets. So when it comes to serving on my plate, I'm taking these big spoonfuls, popping it on my plate, tuck in, take a big bite, and this is not a nice roast potato. It's not a roast potato at all. It's a roast parsnip. I love roast parsnips. Now, as an eight-year-old, this was hugely disappointing. See, my eyes were caught. I was drawn in to this beautiful thing before me. I longed for it, and when I had it, when I experienced it, I was completely disappointed. And just like those roast parsnips, you know, there are things in life that appeal to us. They look good; they draw us in. Now we reach out, we pursue them, we take them, we experience them, and we're left feeling disappointed, unfulfilled. Over these last few weeks, we've considered something. Uh, of the promises of paradise that are presented to us in this world, there's a myriad of voices. They're saying this is where paradise is found. You know, pursue this: the ideal lifestyle, the ideal look, the ideal job, the ideal home, the ideal family, the ideal relationship, even shock horror. You know, the ideal church. These promises of paradise: pursue this, seek this, and you will find satisfaction. And yet, these promises fail to deliver. Now, there is a reason why billionaires are investing in space tourism. Despite all their resources and wealth, they've not found paradise here on Earth. They've not been able to build it. So, the next hope is we're going to find it out there. But it won't be found out there either. Where is paradise? To be found, where is that place of blessing? It's a question that we all ask, often subconsciously. But that question of where is blessing to be found drives so many of our decisions. Where's the place of blessing? That's a question that we're going to be exploring this morning. And in our passage in Genesis 14, do have your Bibles open. Now there are two valleys that we come to, and those two valleys they provoke two questions. Two questions that we're going to consider as we seek to answer this question, and those questions are: Where is your deliverance, and where is your devotion? So we begin with this first question: Where is your deliverance? So back in Genesis chapter thirteen, verse ten, we read that Lot looked around 
and he saw the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoah was well watered like the garden of the Lord. You may recall last week, a few weeks back, there's an abundance of uh, flocks that they have of people. So Lot and Abram, there's this choice that's presented. Lot is told he can take the pick of what he wants. He looks, he sees this land. It looks beautiful. It looks like paradise. It looks like the garden of the Lord. And this is what he pursues. Now, elsewhere in Scripture, 2 Peter describes Lot as a righteous man, and yet his pursuit is this pursuit of these promises of paradise, and in the end, he suffers loss. So when we get to Genesis chapter 19, yes, uh, Lot is saved, but he's saved as one escaping through the flames. And here, in chapter 14, the cracks in those promises of paradise, they start to appear. Now, if you're anything like me when it comes to chapter 14, and you see this list of names and these lists of places, having something visual is helpful. So on the screen as we go through this, I've got some annotated maps, and that might help you kind of figure out roughly where these places are. We're not 100% sure, especially you know, Sodom and Gomorrah and that whole area. It's completely leveled. But this is kind of some of the best guesses that we have. And so follow me through as we go with uh, Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. So at that time, when Amraphel was king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasa, Kedileama, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings went to war against Bera, king of Sodom, Beersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaba, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these later, latter kings joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Dead Sea Valley. So this is the scene. We've got these four kings who've come down from the north to face these five kings of the plain. And then in verses 4 to 7, we get the equivalent of what would be a sort of a movie flashback. We've got the scene here, and then 4 to 7 tells us how we got to this point. So verse 4, for 12 years, they, that's the kings of the plain, have been subject to Kedileama, but in the 13th year, they rebelled. So let's remember, why did Lot choose to live in this area? Why did he choose the plain? Because he looked, and he saw, and it looked like paradise. It was like the garden of the Lord But what's the reality? See, this is a land that is enslaved. For 12 years, it has been subject to Kedolema. And not only is it a land that's enslaved, it's a land that is unable to deliver itself from that slavery. So for 12 years, they've been subject. In the 13th year, they rebel. Now they're going to reassert their freedom. But what's the result? Well, we see in the verses that follow, these kings from the north, they come down, they swoop down as this unstoppable force to reassert their power, just conquest of everything that is in that wake. So verses 5 to 9. So in the 14th year, Kedileama and his allies with him went out and defeated the Rephites in Ashtaroth, Kanaim, the Zuzites in Ham, the Amites in Sheva Kiriathim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran near the desert. Right then, 
they turned back and went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hezon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoah, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidon against Kedalema, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasa. Four kings against five. The battle lines are drawn up, and then now the description of the battle, one verse. Verse 10. There's no great description of this battle. All that happens is the king of Sodom and Gomorrah, they flee. This is a complete walkover. And the result, verse 11 and following, the four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah, all their food, then they went away. They also carried off Abram, not Abram's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. So remember, Lot had chosen to go and live in this area because he looked at it, he saw it, it looked like paradise like the garden of the Lord. And yet it was a land that was enslaved. It was a land that was unable to deliver when the day of trouble came. And likewise, all these promises of paradise that are presented to us by the world, they are unable to deliver in the day of trouble. In this world, we considered last week, we will face troubles of many kinds. Because this is a world that is subject to decay and to death. And just like those kings of the north, ultimately, decay and death sweeps down like this unstoppable, undestructible, undefeated force. And every promise of paradise in this world is subject to decay and to death. No, Christmas is not too far away. Uh, If not already, we're going to soon be bombarded with various adverts, various promises of paradise. Now buy this, eat this, experience this. Films and TV, movies will present us with these pictures of paradise. Now this is the ideal life. Find the one, pursue the one, pursue your dreams. And yet all these promises of paradise are powerless to deliver. They're all subject to decay and death. And we saw that last Christmas, didn't we? A Christmas in lockdown. In the day of trouble, all promises of paradise that this world can offer are unable to deliver. They are subject to decay and to death. Now, that doesn't mean that there isn't a place of refuge. See, there is a deliverance, and it's a deliverance that comes from the Lord. And so after Lot is taken away, a man who escapes, he comes to Abram, and he tells him what has happened. And in verse 14, when Abram hears about this, he calls out the sorry, 318 men, born in his household, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. During the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods and brought back to his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. 
So here, though Abram, he musters his men, there's 318, just drop your eyes down to verse 20. And we'll see where the success really lied. Because it says, praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And this is God who brings about the deliverance. And we see that as we take a closer look at some of the details of this text. So in that valley, in that valley of Sidon, we had five kings against four. The kings of the plain, they outnumbered the kings coming down from the north. They had the home advantage and they're completely wiped out. It's a complete walkover. And yet here, this unstoppable force, this force that has been swooping down from the north, is defeated, completely routed by Abram and 318 men. So he doesn't have a vast number of people. He doesn't have the home advantage. He's had to chase them to the very north far corner of the land, to Dam. There's a march of about 120 miles. So the strength and the victory cannot come from Abram and from his men. And so as we see in verse 20, this deliverance is a deliverance that has come from the Lord. And this is a pattern that we see repeated time and time again in Scripture, that God works through the weak. He delivers through the few in order that it may be seen, that it may be known, that deliverance comes from the Lord. See, and this type of deliverance is a deliverance that we see in all its fullness, in its greatest fulfillment, in the cross of Christ. That Jesus is the crucified Messiah. And in the first century, the cross crucifixion, to a Jew it meant that someone was cursed. To a Roman, it meant that Rome was in power, Rome ruled. And God chose to display his power and his glory and bring blessing to the world through the cross. It's a message of foolishness. It's a weakness. And yet that is the way that Jesus Christ triumphs. That he has disarmed the powers, that those who were the captors, he has taken captive and he has released the prisoners. And so perhaps this morning, now you recognize that you've been sucked in by these promises of paradise. You've seen them. You've pursued them. And instead of finding a place of blessing, you found a place of bondage. Well, know this this morning, that there is a deliverance, and it's a deliverance that comes from the Lord. That's not how the story has to end. That there is a complete and full deliverance through Jesus Christ, one that is not subject to decay and to death. Because Jesus Christ is the one who has triumphed. And he has triumphed by the cross and through the cross. Now every, every burden, the burden of our sin, he has borne. He has borne every sin. He has broken every bond so that every blessing of God might be poured out. God is the one who delivers. And yet not just the one who delivers from these false promises of blessing, but delivers us to true blessing. Where blessing is to be found, as we see in the verses that follow, in verses 17 and following. 
Which leads us to the second question of where is your deliverance? Sorry, where is your devotion? Now, so far in Genesis, the episodes of Abraham's life, they tend to conclude with Abraham at an altar, worshipping, worshipping the Lord. Here, this time, we don't encounter Abraham at an altar. We see this encounter with a priest king. And in verse 17, we come to another valley. So the battle was lost in the valley of Sidon. And here now, as we come to the valley of Sheva, a decision is to be made. And this valley, we're told in verse 17, it's the king's valley. There are two kings that we meet in this valley. The king of Sodom and Melchizedek, king of Salem. Now just have a look ahead to verse 21. King of Sodom. The king of Sodom comes out as he sees Abram. He says to him, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. Just notice those opening words from the king of Sodom. Give me, give me the people. Now we've already seen the king of Sodom's inability to deliver, his inability to bestow blessing. Now his land was a land that looked like paradise. But it was a land that was subject to decay and to destruction. The king of Sodom has nothing to offer. He just takes. He says to Abram, give me. Give me the people. He says, keep the goods for yourself. Now, in the the ancient world, that was Abram's right. He defeated the enemy. He could keep the plunder to himself. See, even these words here, this isn't the king of Sodom giving. This isn't generosity. This is just another means of him seeking to take to himself. And we see that in Abram's response. He knows what's going on. Verse 23, I will accept nothing that belongs to you, king of Sodom, so that you, the king of Sodom, may not be able to say, I made Abram rich. See, whether it's people, whether it's power, whether it's prestige, the king of Sodom is just interested in taking. Notice the contrast with Melchizedek. Verse 18, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. King of Sodom, give to me. Melchizedek comes out giving, brings out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. This is the first person in the Bible at this point who's explicitly labeled as a priest. Now, priest was someone who was to act as a representative between the people and God. And just notice the kind of double direction of verses 19 to 20. So Melchizedek says, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth. This is God's blessing on Abraham. It's from a heaven to earth direction. And then verse 20, praise or blessed be God most high who delivered your enemies into your hands. See here, this is a blessing, it's a praise to God. We're going from earth 
to heaven. So verse 19, heaven to earth. Verse 20, earth to heaven. Now, priest is someone who's called to straddle God's space and humanity's space. And so what Eden was as a place, the ideal priest was to be as a person. So in the Garden of Eden, this place of paradise, it was a place where heaven and earth overlapped. And because of that, it was the place where God's blessings were poured out. And in Genesis 3, humanity forfeit that place on account of our rebellion. And yet what we see through Genesis is God's continued commitment to bless. And so what Eden was to be as a place, the ideal priest is to be as a person. The ideal priest is to bring out the blessings of Eden. Again, when I was a kid, there was a no more magical place than Argos. Now, this is the days before the internet. So I know for some of the youth, this is going to be shocking, that we didn't scroll through a phone looking for things to buy. We had a physical thing called a catalog that you would flick through. And you didn't have a like button. That wasn't an option. You had a biro. And you would circle the things that you would hope you might get for your birthday or for Christmas or you'd like to spend your pocket money on. And that's what we did. And you could see like all the treasures that were there at Argos, but you couldn't actually take hold of them. Because when you go to Argos, there's a physical barrier, and it separates another customer from the store, from the great storehouse in the back, or the bounty of goodness that's there. And what you need is an official Argos representative, also known as an employee, who will go into the back and they will bring out the produce to you. Now, don't push that analogy too far. But that's kind of something of what we see going on here. The ideal priest king would bring out the blessings of Eden. And that's how Melchizedek is presented. So Melchizedek, verse 18, he brings out bread and wine. And perhaps when you think of bread and wine, our minds immediately go to the Lord's Supper. And when we think of the Lord's Supper, depending on your tradition, you think of either a small cube of bread or a little wafer, or maybe a tiny cup of grape juice, or perhaps a larger cup, but that everyone takes a little sip from. So just park all that imagery and push it to one side uh, in your mind. Don't think about that. When, When Melchizedek brings out bread and wine, He's not bringing out these tiny morsels of bread and and mini cups. In fact, this term bread uh, gets later used in Genesis 43. Joseph uses it to describe the great feast that is laid out before his brothers. In a similar way, like in our English, when we speak of a roast, we can just refer to a small portion of meat on your plate, or it can refer, refer to the whole sumptuous feast that is laid before you, a roast dinner. So Melchizedek here, he brings out this feast, and it's a royal feast. Bread and wine used elsewhere, speaking of a feast of kings. Melchizedek brings out this royal feast, and then he blesses Abram. Now in Genesis 12, God said, now I will bless you, Abram. And this is the next time we read of blessing. Blessing. 
So even though in Egypt, Abraham acquires great wealth that is never described as blessing. Genesis 12, God makes this promise, I will bless you, I will make you great. Here in Genesis 14, the blessing is pronounced. Genesis 12, blessing promised. Genesis 14, blessing pronounced. Notice this blessing. It is God's blessing. Blessed be Abraham by God most high. The blessing is pronounced and it is mediated through this priest king. So what's happening in verses 18 to 19? Melchizedek brings out this feast. And he bestows God's blessing on Abram. Now that is the same pattern that we saw in the garden in Genesis 1. Genesis 1, verses 28 to 29. God blessed them, humanity, bestowing a blessing, said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. So in the garden, in that place of blessing, God bestows a blessing and provides them with abundant food. So do you see the parallels here? with verses 18 and 19. It's the same thing that is happening, and the blessings of Eden now are coming through this priest king. What Eden was to be as a place, the ideal priest was to be as a person. See, Lot chose Sodom because it looked like paradise. It looked like the place of blessing, but in Genesis 14, we see that paradise is not found in a place, it is mediated by a person. And time and time again in the Old Testament, we read of these people, these characters, and their lives become job descriptions for the Messiah. See, so far we've seen in Genesis that we cannot enter into that place of blessing on account of our sin and our rebellion, that we cannot build that place of blessing. We can't create it ourselves. And what is needed is for a priest king, one who is able to enter into that place of blessing and to bring out those blessings to the world. That's the job description that is laid before us. Now, Scripture shows us that Jesus is the one who fulfills that job description. He's described as a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And what Melchizedek here is portrayed as doing, Jesus does in reality. That Jesus is the means by which God's blessing is poured out on the world. And we might say a hallelujah and amen to that. And yet this is what I found most challenging in this passage the decision that we have to make. Where is our devotion? Because, just look again at verse 21. What is it that the king of Sodom says to Abram? Give me the people. 
Well, that suggests that up to this point, the people have been with Abram. Lot has been with Abram. The people of Sodom have been with Abram. They've seen, they've experienced life under the king of Sodom. They've seen how he was powerless to deliver, how he was just completely walked over. They've seen this whole experience that that he can't bestow blessings, that he's just one who's interested in taking to himself. They've probably seen this interaction with Melchizedek. They may have even experienced something of this feast. So why is it, in verse 19, Lot is still in Sodom? Why is his devotion still to the king of Sodom? Having experienced all that has happened, knowing that that king is powerless to bless and just takes. And that's something that we can do, I can do all too easily. Do we pursue these promises of paradise? We become disappointed, we become disillusioned, and then we say to ourselves, next time, it might work. It's disappointed this time, but you know what? Next time, I might be satisfied. Now that next job, that next relationship, that next house move, that next movie, it didn't satisfy last time, but... Maybe next time it will. And we need to remind ourselves, we need to remind one another the reason that we haven't found the blessing that we often long for in those promises of paradise is not because we've not searched hard enough. Because that's not where they're found. Blessing It's not found in a place. It's mediated through a person. And true, eternal, life-giving blessing comes through the one true priest king, Jesus Christ. And so what if the energies that we often exert in pursuing these promises of blessing, we exert in pursuing Christ? Let's do that now. Father, all praise goes to you, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Father, so often, so quickly we forget that truth. And our eyes are drawn to the empty promises of this world. Father, it's not just forgiveness we ask for, but for a greater glimpse of the glory of Christ. Lord, that we may see, that we may know, and that we may pursue him in in whom all blessing, true blessing, eternal blessing is found. Lord, as we have prayed Many times, and a prayer that we're called to continually pray. But we pray that we would know the hope of the, of your great calling in Christ. Lord, the riches of your inheritance in your holy people. 
Lord, and your great power, that power that delivers from death. Father, will you captivate our hearts, not just this day, not just this week, but throughout our life with the greater glory of Christ. Lord, that we would pursue him, the one who has pursued us. Lord, and that indeed we would find our rest not in the temporary things of this world, that that would not be where our joy is rooted, that we would give thanks to you for all the good gifts that you do give us. But that our hope and that our security uh, is rooted in your Son, our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.